Our gospel reading today from the Gospel of John, reading John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again together. Father, as we approach your holy word today, we come before you in great weakness. Father, we, we can't hear, we can't receive, except by an act of your Holy Spirit. And so we now beseech you, O Lord, to send forth your Spirit and to make your word plain to us and to make of us a believing people that not only hear the word, Lord, but who mold their lives in accordance with it, who build their lives upon the rock, which is Jesus Christ. And so now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts, God, may they be acceptable in your sight, for you alone are our rock, and you alone, O God, are our Redeemer. 
We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1885, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he'd been in ministry for 35 years. And uh, at that point in, in 1885, he would be in ministry for seven more years until he died in 1892. And in 1885, after all those many years of preaching, Spurgeon had been looking through his preaching texts. And he says, in looking over the list of texts from which I've preached all these years, I was greatly surprised that I have no record of ever having spoken on John 3.16. And he says, the omission is all the more remarkable because this verse has been at the forefront of all my volumes, and it's been the sole topic of my ministry. It's odd, you know. We've seen this verse so many times. We've seen this verse placarded at sporting events, and it's been hoisted high, at times very insensitively, to TV cameras. And it's very easy for us to identify John 3.16 with a certain type of American fundamentalism. In 2009, in fact, Tim Tebow, he inscribed John 3.16 on his eye black when he led the Florida Gators to their national collegiate championship. And Tebow evidently thought that he was doing great service to the kingdom of God. But that kind of branding and those kinds of associations can negatively color a verse that in Lloyd-Jones's words is packed with vital Christian doctrine. Luther called John 3.16 the Bible in miniature. And J.C. Ryle, when he writes about this verse in particular, he says, a, wonder, a more wonderful verse in the Bible simply cannot be found. It's the kind of verse where we should rightly set down our anchor and fasten ourselves to its central theme, which is the love of God and the love of God demonstrated through the salvation of men and women. And particularly here, not just Jewish men and women, but the love of God encompasses all humanity. And it's very important when we look at John 3.16 to remember who Jesus or to whom Jesus is talking. Jesus is very concerned to get a certain point across to Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus the Pharisee had forgotten something that was very important. And not just Nicodemus, but Pharisees in general had managed to separate from their worship the very heart of worship which is the love of God for humanity. That God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. That God has compassion upon the 120,000 Ninevites who don't know the difference between their right hand and their left hand. The God who says, from my temple will flow a river and wherever it goes across the land, it will bring life, a vision of healing for the nations in Ezekiel. A God who makes a scarlet cord for the likes of Rahab, not only a foreigner and an outsider, but a notorious sinner. A God for whom the healing waters of Jordan with all that rich imagery of baptism was meant for a Syrian man, meant for 
Naaman. Why? Because God across the Old Testament and across the New says, I love the world. And Israel was always meant to be a light for the nations. And God's salvation was always designed to go to the ends of the globe. And so Jesus now comes to Nicodemus and he presses this truth upon this Pharisee, a man who had conjured up an image of God so as to make of him a tribal deity, limited, small, and relatively unconcerned with what goes on in the broader world. In fact, for Nicodemus, God was a Pharisee. And that's a warning, by the way, for all of us who are tempted to confine God within and to make God limited by our own theological systems, to make God in the image of how we think about him. But God's no Pharisee. And so I want today to consider what Jesus says about his father. And first of all, Jesus says that God loved the world. And not only that he loved the world, but Jesus says God so loved the world. Spurgeon writes, when God's love flowed to the world, when it flowed forth so deep, so wide, so strong, that even the evangelist could not compute its measure, the Holy Spirit gave us this little word, so. God's love is extravagant. God's love is immeasurable. God's love, it cascades and it leaps towards us in torrential force. God so loved the world. And when we think what that world was, and when we think what that world is, it makes God's love all the more astonishing. You see, the modern world that you and I live in It views the world as a relatively good place that is peppered with a bunch of bad blokes. It's largely filled, so they say, with good people. Those people who like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love to grow apple trees and honeybees and snow-white turtle doves, to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony Those who want to buy the world a Coke and keep it company. That's the real thing, after all. What the world wants, the song says, it's the real thing. And if you don't know that song, you can Google, I want to buy the world a Coke, and uh, find out what exactly I mean. But you see, the biblical portrait says otherwise. That's not the real thing. The world does indeed want a home, and it wants to make harmony, but it wants that home and it wants that harmony outside of the maker of heaven and earth. No sooner had God destroyed the whole world because of its rampant and its excessive wickedness that the world starts all over again at Babel, building itself a home seeking harmony with one another, gathering each other, linking arms to make a name for humanity rather than to make a name for God. Come, they say, let us build a city. Let us build a tower, a tower that will reach to the heavens where we can be on high, and there let us make a name 
for ourselves. Let us bring fame to our name. And that's the history of the world in a nutshell. A people across tribes, across cultures, making a name for itself rather than making a name for God for which we've been made. You see, with the needle of our compass pointed in the wrong direction, pointed towards humanity's fame rather than God's, we will always devour one another. We will always mar the creation. The creature does not know how to be a creature without pointing to the Creator. And we take the Creator's tools. We don't know how to use them. And we take His plowshares and we make them into swords. And we take His pruning hooks and we make them into spears. And we ruin each other. Not only when we liquidate a people six million at a time, but we ruin each other even when we think we're doing each other a kindness. Even when we trumpet the message of love and of kindness and of tolerance. Even when we, when we trumpet the message of justice, even then we devour each other because apart from the Creator, we don't know how to be creatures. And we do it all Wrong. And so the Bible says even our moral conquests, they are corrupt. Even our righteousness is as filth before God. And God so loved that world. God so loved the world. No fragrant flower grew in that desert, right, Spurgeon? Enmity to him. Hatred to his truth, disregard towards his law, rebellion against his commandments. Those were the thorns and the briars that covered the wasteland. No desirable thing blossomed there, the preacher says. And yet, God so loved the world. Not because he had no reason to destroy it. In fact, in Jeremiah 12, God says, My people have come to me like a lion in the forest. My heritage has lifted up his voice against me. Therefore, God says, I hate her. If any nation will not listen, he goes on to say, If any nation will not listen to me, then I will utterly pluck it up. And I will destroy it. You see, we have no way of fathoming today how God's righteous being, it recoils at all the evil that we do. All the murder. All the vain pride and haughtiness and strutting around like we're gods to be admired. All the falsehoods and the treacheries and all the godlessness. All the refusal from day to day to acknowledge that God is God, the Lord the Maker and the chief end of all things. How God sees all of this and endures all these things that He hates from the center of His being. And if Lot's righteous soul was tormented, we read, by the things he saw and heard day after day in Sodom and Gomorrah, how much more God's. And yet we read today that God so loved this world the world he rightly hates, 
the world that angers him every day. My brothers and sisters, it is bad theology to ignore and to deny God's hate and his anger. To pretend that it doesn't exist or to relegate God's anger to the Old Testament or to mitigate God's anger by saying God loves the sinner and hates the sin. Which makes no sense scripturally whatsoever because the sin is nothing without the one who makes it happen by intellect and by will. It's the sinner that does the sin. There's no sin without it. Jonathan Edwards was right. God's anger, it burns against these sinners. It burns against the people. And when we forget this, rather than strengthening God's love a la Rob Bell, we undermine it and we weaken it. Because the sheer force of God's love is only seen when we recognize that he didn't love friends, but he loved enemies. God so loved this world. The torrent of his affection triumphed over his anger. His sheer pity and his mercy for his creation compels God to say to God, Oh, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. God delights in mercy. God so loved this world. And the evidence in our passion of the love is seen in what God does to save them. God gives his only begotten son. God gives his son to a life of poverty and of loneliness and rejection. God gives his son to be slandered and hated and ridiculed. God gives his son to be scourged and smitten and crowned with unimaginable torture. God gives his son to die a felon's death. Why? Because God gives his son for the world that he loves. And he lets his son be crucified in abject shame. None of us, says Spurgeon, had such a son to give. God gives the chief delight of his heart. None of us who's made in in God's image is like the Son. Man begets man. God begets God. And from all eternity, God has begotten one who reflects his very self in every way. Hebrews 1, he is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. And the Father loves the Son above all things. The Son is the chief source of God's delight. Listen to God. He says to the whole world, this, this is my beloved Son. This is the Son whom I love. The Son who brings me infinite joy. With Him, I am well pleased. And here's a world that hates God. That rebels against Him. 
that refuses his laws and wherever it goes, it mars his creation that is proud and vain and it's spiteful and it's cruel. And God loves this world so much. God from the center of his being is so compassionate and he's so given to mercy that he gives the one thing (laughs) that will heal the wound of the world. He gives these rebels the thing that he loves best. He gives them his son to bear the punishment, to bear the wrath, to bear the punishment that is our due, the curse of an everlasting God. He gives his own son to be the ram and the offering on whose head all of our guilt and all of our rebellion. And all of our twistedness and perversity and crookedness on that innocent head, on that innocent life, God places it all. God's most precious possession. Because God so loved the world. Rather than pouring it upon us, He poured upon His own Son every last drop of judgment that our sin had deserved. Jesus was wounded for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord, we read in Isaiah, was pleased to crush that which he loved most and to put him to grief. Unless we're tempted to make light of the cross in any way, Christ takes into his own self that judgment which is expressed in Scripture as everlasting burnings. Christ endures in his own self the torment that lasts forever. He takes it all. He endures it all so that the Father's righteous anger is vindicated and we go scot-free. This, says Spurgeon, is the marrow of the gospel. Sin is punished in the person of Christ, and mercy is extended to the guilty. Well, you'd think, perhaps, that at such a great cost, God would expect us to do something even little to earn the gift of the Son. And yet we read here in John that all we have to do is to believe. The only condition for salvation is that we believe that God has done in Christ what we could not do. Namely, God was reconciling the world to himself in his Son. Not counting our trespasses against us. God made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. See, the only condition for salvation today is to believe. The only condition for salvation is to believe that Christ has done all, and God therefore will accept even the smallest offerings of faith. Faith as small as a mustard seed. God will accept a Simeon who can carry Christ in his arms and thank God Rejoice in Him for His salvation 
God will also accept the poor. And a diseased woman who can only reach out furtively to lay hold of the healing virtue in Christ's garment. And I want you to note today, finally, the whoever. The invitation unequivocally and unhesitatingly by Jesus goes out to all. Whoever, in John 3.16, means whoever. There's not a person on the planet to whom that relative pronoun does not apply. Whatever race, whatever country, whatever age, whatever background, whatever sin, whatever crimes, whoever by Jesus means whoever. And so Spurgeon preached mightily to that crowd in 1885 and he proclaims, whoever you may be, you are still within range of this mighty word, whoever. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but will have eternal life. And so Calvin likewise writes, God invites all men without exception, to the faith of Christ. And it's true, my brothers and sisters, that few are chosen. We believe this as a gospel church, but the call goes out indiscriminately to all. The call goes out today to your neighbors. The call goes out to your co-workers. The call goes out to your friends. The call goes out to your family. And where it seems that there's the most hardened opposition to the teachings of Jesus, where it seems that no faith could possibly emerge, like Saul of Tarsus, seething with anger that this Stephen would cry, I see the Lord resurrected from the dead and seated and standing in that place of authority. I see him there. Even there, as Paul ravages the church, the gospel call is met with faith by the working of God's grace and by the working of His Spirit. And so, church, let me say this today. Let's be about the gospel. And let's believe with J.C. Ryle that a more wonderful verse than this cannot be found anywhere in Scripture that God so loved this world that He gave what was most important to Him, His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And may God in His grace add to Christ's church those who are being saved as we faithfully proclaim the very simple message of the gospel here in this place. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.